This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adolescent Blount's disease from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Adolescent Blount's disease is a progressive pathologic genuvarum centered at the tibia. Blount's disease is best divided into two distinct disease entities, infantile Blount's disease and adolescent Blount's disease, which we'll discuss in this podcast episode. Infantile Blount's disease is a pathologic genuvarum in children 0 to 3 years of age. It is more common than adolescent Blount's disease. In infantile Blount's disease, the deformity is rarely from the femur and typically affects both lower extremities. In adolescent Blount's disease, this is a pathologic genuvarum in children over 10 years of age. Adolescent Blount's disease is more likely to have a femoral deformity. It is less common compared to infantile Blount's disease, it's less severe, and it's most likely to be unilateral. As far as the etiology of adolescent Blount's disease, Blount's is thought to be caused by a dyschondrosis of the medial physis of the proximal tibia. It is likely multifactorial, but may be related to mechanical overload in genetically susceptible individuals. Risk factors include obesity and African-American descent. Now, let's quickly compare infantile Blount's disease with adolescent Blount's disease with respect to age, bilaterality, risks, classification systems, severity, location, bone involvement, natural history, and treatment options. As far as age, infantile Blount's disease can be seen in patients 2 to 5 years old, and adolescent Blount's disease is seen in patients over 10 years old. As far as bilaterality, in infantile Blount's disease, 50% of patients have bilateral involvement. In adolescent Blount's disease, this is usually unilateral. Risk factors for infantile Blount's disease is early walking, large stature, and obesity. Risk factors for adolescent Blount's disease is obesity. The classification system for infantile Blount's disease is the Langenskold classification, while there is no radiographic classification for adolescent Blount's disease. The location of infantile Blount's disease is physial/epiphyseal, whereas adolescent Blount's disease is metaphyseal. As far as bone involvement in infantile Blount's disease, the proximal medial tibia physis is involved that produces genuvarus, flexion, internal rotation, and may have compensatory distal femoral valgus. As far as bone involvement in adolescent Blount's, the proximal tibial physis is involved and it may have distal femoral varus and distal tibia valgus. As far as the natural history of infantile Blount's disease, it's typically self-limited, and stage 2 and stage 4 can exhibit spontaneous resolution. The natural history of adolescent Blount's is that it's progressive and never resolves spontaneously, thus bracing is unlikely to work. Treatment options for infantile Blount's disease is bracing and surgery. Treatment for adolescent Blount's is surgery only. As far as the presentation of patients with adolescent Blount's disease, on physical exam, the hallmark is a genuvarum deformity. Other findings include obesity, and remember that adolescent Blount's disease is usually unilateral compared to bilateral and infantile Blount's disease. Limb length discrepancy is typically secondary to the deformity, and you may also find mild to moderate laxity of the medial collateral ligament. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a standing long cassette AP radiograph of both lower extremities and make sure to ensure that the patellas are facing forward as this is commonly associated with internal tibial torsion. Findings suggestive of adolescent Blount's disease on plane films include narrowing of the tibial epiphysis, widening of the medial tibial growth plate, 
and occasional widening of the lateral distal femoral physis. Keep in mind that metaphyseal beaking is less commonly seen with adolescent blounts. Again, metaphyseal beaking is less commonly seen with adolescent blounts disease. As far as measurements, the ones to know include the metaphyseal diaphyseal angle, or the Drennan angle, and the tibiofemoral angle. The metaphyseal diaphyseal angle, or the Drennan angle, is the angle between the line connecting the metaphyseal beaks and a line perpendicular to the longitudinal axis of the tibia. Greater than 16 degrees is considered abnormal. The tibiofemoral angle is the angle between the longitudinal axis of the femur and the tibia. Treatment of adolescent Blount's disease can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation or bracing, which is unlikely to be successful, as treatment is always surgical in adolescent Blount's disease. However, the indications for non-operative management is mild cases only. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, typically there are poor outcomes associated in adolescent Blount's disease, as this condition will progress and cause medial joint pain and altered kinematics. In addition, early onset arthritis is common in untreated cases. Operative options for adolescent Blount's disease include lateral tibia and fibular epiphysiodesis, proximal tibia slash fibula osteotomy, and distal femoral osteotomy or epiphysiodesis. A lateral tibia and fibular epiphysiodesis is indicated for mild to moderate deformity with growth remaining. As far as outcomes, up to 25% of patients may require a formal osteotomy due to residual deformity. Proximal tibia slash fibula osteotomy is indicated for more severe cases in the skeletally mature. This can be achieved with the valgus-producing tibial osteotomy and plating and can also be achieved with gradual correction with external fixation. As far as outcomes, multiplanar external fixation following osteotomy allows gradual angle and length correction and decreases risk on neurovascular structures. Finally, distal femoral osteotomy or epiphysiodesis is indicated for distal femoral varus deformity of 8 degrees or greater. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. Specifically, we'll talk about lateral tibia and fibular epiphysiodesis and proximal tibia slash fibula osteotomy. With respect to a lateral tibia and fibular epiphysiodesis, the options can include a transient hemiepiphysiodesis or a permanent hemiepiphysiodesis. The technique for a transient hemiepiphysiodesis is tethering the physis with an eight plate or staples. You may remove the implant once correction is achieved. The pros of a transient hemiepiphysiodesis is that it's simple and allows for gradual correction in children with adequate growth remaining. The other pro is that implants may be removed. The cons are that this option requires significant growth remaining and close observation is necessary following the operation as the growth plate may stop functioning or have a rebound period of accelerated growth. The technique for a permanent hemiepiphysiodesis is obliteration of the physis through a small lateral incision. The pros is that there is limited surgery, overcorrection is uncommon, and this does not limit the ability to perform corrective osteotomy in the future. The cons of a permanent hemiepiphysiodesis is that it cannot correct rotational deformity and up to 25% of cases may require formal corrective osteotomy. Moving on to a proximal tibia slash fibula osteotomy, as far as the goals of correction, overcorrection to valgus is not indicated, as is the case in infantile Blount's disease. Make sure to strive for a neutral mechanical axis. A proximal tibia slash fibula osteotomy can be done through a high tibial osteotomy with rigid internal fixation or osteotomy with external fixation and gradual correction. 
The technique of a high tibial osteotomy with rigid internal fixation can involve a variety of techniques, including a closing wedge, opening wedge, dome, serrated, and inclined osteotomies. There are also a variety of fixation devices, including casting, pins and wires, screws, or plates and screws. Postoperatively, you will limit weight bearing with the use of crutches for six to eight weeks. The pros of a high tibial osteotomy with rigid internal fixation is that you can perform immediate correction. The cons are that there's a potential for neurologic injury due to acute lengthening, and there's a potential for compartment syndrome, and therefore you should consider prophylactic fasciotomies. The technique for an osteotomy with external fixation and gradual correction is that you will initially perform an osteotomy and connect the frame that allows for gradual correction. You can use a Taylor spatial frame or an Elizaroff ring external fixator. As far as post-op considerations, usually 12 to 18 weeks of treatment are needed. The pros of an osteotomy with an external fixation and gradual correction are that gradual correction limits neurovascular compromise and the risk for a compartment syndrome. This option will also allow for correction of the deformity in all planes. The cons of this option include pin side infection, the duration of the treatment, as well as the bulk of the construct. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's do one quick question to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. So this question is about a 38-year-old male that's scheduled to have a corrective osteotomy for tibia vera. Which osteotomy will restore limb alignment, minimize anatomical axis translation and shortening, minimize translation of bone ends, and provide the most bone contact? And the choices are 1. A McKay dome osteotomy, 2. A focal dome osteotomy, 3. An intraarticular uniplanar oblique osteotomy, 4. An extraarticular uniplanar oblique osteotomy, and 5. A horizontal osteotomy. The correct answer to this question is 2. A focal dome osteotomy. So a focal dome osteotomy with the center of the dome located at the center of rotation of angulation or cora would correct limb alignment with the least translation of bone ends, least translation of the anatomical axis, and minimal shortening. When performing osteotomies, it's important to remember the rules of osteotomy as outlined by Paley. Rule 1 is the axis of correction of angulation or the ACA can pass through the cora. If the osteotomy passes through the ACA cora, correction produces pure angulation at the osteotomy site. That is no translation. Rule 2 is that if the axis of correction of angulation passes through the cora, but the osteotomy does not pass through the ACA cora, there will be angulation and translation of the bone ends at the osteotomy site. But the axis lines are collinear, that is no translation of the axis. And finally, rule three is that if the osteotomy passes through the ACA but the cora is at a different level, there will be angulation but no translation of bone ends. The axis lines will be parallel but translated. Guggenheim et al. described correction of distal femoral coronal plane deformities in 14 femurs. They used temporary external fixators, performed percutaneous dome osteotomy, inserted retrograde IM nails, and finally removed the external fixators. Mean healing was achieved at 13 weeks. They achieved normal mechanical lateral distal femoral angle in 12 knees and a normal mechanical axis in 10 knees. They believe that this technique produces accurate correction, few complications, corrects valgus slash varus deformities, and allows for early mobilization. That's all for this review of adolescent Blount's disease. Hopefully that was helpful.
This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.